Hello, hello, you guys. Hope everyone's doing okay out there in the upside down. Um, in a dramatic turn of events, America seems to have decided that police brutality is in fact bad. And at these police brutality protests, there have been hundreds if not thousands of instances caught on camera of more police brutality. One night I was just scrolling on Twitter, just sort of captivated by what was happening, and it started to feel like I was watching some sort of Civil War light unraveling in real time. Now, I know I'm probably not alone when I say that this time feels different. I have never seen so many people take to the streets to protest police brutality in my admittedly brief existence. And yet there have been several high profile cases since the Black Lives Matter movement began about seven years ago. So what changed? Why now? I'm not totally sure, but I have a few theories. For one, George Floyd's murder was caught on camera, clear as day, meaning that there was no spinning it. Another contributor is that Gen Z is now in their teens and 20s. We are getting killed every day for our skin tone. Don't put your hands in your pockets. Don't put your hoodie on. Don't ride with the music too loud. I support Black Lives Matter because Black lives are human lives, and if you don't think so, you've got a screw loose in your head and you need help. There are 74 million Zoomers who are growing up with movements like Black Lives Matter Online. Unlike the old days, you're probably not going to lose your job or your brand deals for talking about police brutality on social media. In fact, people might even give you shit if you don't. Which, side note, I have some complicated feelings about because obviously we want to incentivize people to speak out if there's something horrible happening. But it also means that, you know, some cringy influencers are going to use things like death and tragedy to promote themselves, to gain clout. And that's not even to mention the nauseating performative wokeness that we have to endure from all these giant corporations that want to lecture people while also having very exploitative or even racist policies. It makes me wonder, are companies replacing churches? Are, are they becoming our new moral compasses? My last theory is that people are just tired of everything. They're tired of the lack of accountability, they're tired of the corruption, so it's no wonder that some people look at this and just want to burn the whole thing down. You know, whatever the magical formula is, we are here now, and it finally feels like change might actually be happening. But the question now is, what kind of change? What will it take to not only reduce police violence, but to end it? Chapter 1. Prepare for Battle there's been a lot of discussion about how police brutality is a systemic problem. It's basically the idea that we can't really fix this by just eliminating, you know, individual bad apples. We have to think critically about how policing is actually done in America, the philosophy of it, the practice of it, from top to bottom. You know, police have a lot of power. They have an authority to take someone's life. They have the authority to take someone's liberty. And to allow that level of authority into the hands of someone um, without allowing for some kind of formalized training outside of militarization, I don't think that that is the way that we should be approaching this. I mean, we require 
doctors, we require nurses, we require phlebotomists, you know, to have formalized education. This is McCole Jordan McBride. She is the senior program manager at NYU's Policing Project. She is working on a pilot project on the ground right now in Chicago that changes how they police. We believe that if we actually allow for the community to be at the front end, then we'll have less back end acts happening. And that looks like allowing for the community who are experts in their area um, to be able to say, these are the issues. This is what public safety looks like to us. These are some solutions that we think will be viable. And then you have buy-in not only from um, the CPD, but you have it from the community. So then the community doesn't feel like they're being occupied. They feel like they're actually being heard. Most often what we see is back-end accountability. So that is, you know, misconduct reading boards. It's all these things that's happened after the fact. And I really hope and pray that we get to a place where we start thinking more critically about how do we think about front-end accountability? Because at the end of the day, anytime we're talking about back-end accountability, someone's life has been changed. So you're piloting this in Chicago right now? Yes. And how's it going? Um, so far, so good. I mean, obviously, um, these are trying times across the country. Um, one thing that I always say is that we didn't get here overnight, right, where we are with policing. Like, this is a historical situation. This is These are systemic problems that we're dealing with, especially when you have a situation where you have um, people who are not of color who are going through this militarized training. There's already um, very strong stereotypes about certain communities, and you're thrown into these communities at midnight or at the height of when there may be unrest and the only thing they have to rely on is this militarized training because it becomes a this is what i was trained to do and this is how i'm going to get home at night and this is the opposite of what it needs to be police officers across the country especially as they are going into various communities need to understand what make up those communities the background of those communities and personally i feel like there has to be implicit bias training and an understanding of cultural differences before we just send people into these communities and say, have at it. And the message sort of is have at it. When I was looking up information about police training for my little brother, you know, he was kind of interested in maybe becoming a cop. I was floored at some of the things that the police leadership are saying about their profession, like they're at war. One recruiting website reads, in hand-to-hand -hand battle, staying in shape may be the edge that keeps you alive. Once I became a police officer, I noticed several others in my profession that, in my opinion, were too out of shape to be cops. At 50, I was jumping 12-foot chain-link fences while my cover officer, around my age, stayed on the other side and watched. I consider those so-called cover officers useless to me. The youngsters you'll be chasing are going to be half your age, and a lot of them are twice your size. Is the difference between a bad cop and a good cop how well you can tackle somebody? This sentiment is echoed in trainings across the country, where the average cop gets about 110 hours of firearms training and self-defense training, and only 8 hours of community problem solving. I don't know the, the exact point where we started using tanks and full 
body suits, even to camouflage, right? It's like a paramilitary. It's definitely seen as an occupying force. And so when you have that, it's like a war zone. Yeah, it's almost like they're training soldiers. Now, you had mentioned the importance of implicit bias training. Have you guys found in your research or in these pilot programs that this makes a difference? So we're in what's called the 25th district here in Chicago. Um, and allowing for community-led um, trainings um, and allowing for the officers that's been a part of the pilot to actually have the time and the space to have conversations, like hard conversations, right? Um, to challenge that implicit bias. You know, I, I do think that implicit bias um, training is great, but we also have to be able to allow for the interactions to help to debunk the myths and the stereotypes that people grow up with. Mm -hmm. And so if we just do a training and we never have applied or application of it, then that does not go far enough. The conversation element seems so important because if you have a group of people who maybe, you know, grew up being exposed to racial stereotypes like we all are, and then, you know, go to one or two trainings talking about here's why it's wrong, here's my why it might affect your work seems like it still leaves an opening for dehumanization and othering to happen, especially when there's a lot of tension and it's a high-stakes situation. To your point, what, what oftentimes happens is then that trainer, that community person becomes like, oh, they're the exception, right? That Black person is wonderful, blah, blah, blah. But all the rest of them, you know, that's a whole nother story. Do you find that people in the community want to engage with the police in this way? Obviously, there are extremes, right? There are people who want to completely abolish the police and not have to deal with them at all. Um, and then just like you have police that don't want to have anything to do with community engagement. Um, but I do think that there is a significant population and particularly in Black communities that are willing to come to the table and have these conversations because they do feel like, you know, the police can play a significant role in public safety, but it just needs to be on their terms. And they, they don't want to consistently be misunderstood and mistreated mm -hmm. because of your misunderstanding. Yeah, certainly. You know, it does kind of conflict a little bit with some of the activist protocol that I've seen out there, though, where, you know, it's it's not on marginalized communities to be educating, um, you know, these groups of people who may be inflicting violence, like the police. Do you think that maybe there's a little bit of a conflict there with the activist philosophy and maybe what some of these changes are really going to take? I get it. I get it. Like, I should not have to bear that responsibility. Um, however, I also feel like, how else will you know me if I if you don't talk to me, right? And so I think that, again, it's about intentionality. The more that we are allowed for spaces where we can actually just talk and laugh and talk about shared experiences. And so it becomes less pressure, I feel, of me educating you as opposed to us just actually getting to know each other on on a real or human level. And so, yes, it is very hard to say, God, dog it, why do I have to keep, go read a book, right? You want to tell people like, go read a book. But I do think that just seeing that 
and not allowing for space for interaction no matter who you are i can't just read a book about my husband and say oh well i know him no i have to actually spend time talking to him i have to talk to my best friend in order to actually know them and i think that that's what we have to get to chapter two defund the police While we can look at cops and say, hey, you know, you're not doing your job, we also need to ask ourselves what job we're asking them to do. Over time, police have been expected to address a truly dizzying number of social problems all by themselves. Drug addiction, mental health crises, homelessness, domestic violence, truancy, I mean, the list goes on. When we don't take the time to understand the complexities of everything you just mentioned, especially when you start thinking about education, right? And how defunded education is in certain communities, which leads to cer- certain social ills. We don't have nearly amount of guidance counselors or social workers in schools where it's really needed. And so what you have is a cycle of violence. You have a cycle of poverty that leads to some of the social ills that we have. And so the things that come with that oftentimes is higher crime. And so because we won't take a step back and say, okay, what got us here? We want immediate gratification and the immediate gratification is we need more police. And I wonder how much fear plays a role in it. People see problems in their communities and they feel scared. And when you feel scared, you want to feel protected. I mean, that's fair, right? Um, Everyone wants to feel safe. Everyone wants to feel like they can make it home at night and be protected in their home. It is up to leadership, right, of cities, of of states who have the tools at hand, have the ability, have the numbers to actually be able to say, this is what got us here and we have to do everything we can in our power and in our budget to right these wrongs. It's this point about getting to the root of our social problems that leads some to argue that we should defund the police. And I find that what a lot of people mean by this is that we should divest from the police, right? We should be cutting the budget and instead putting that money toward things like education, social services, job training, transitional housing, things like that. But others interpret defund the police in more radical terms, right? To, to literally abolish the police. Some Black Lives Matter activists have raised the concern that this would likely just mean that police become a private company. And that could mean even less accountability. McCool also worries that the approach could backfire. I'm careful to go from one extreme to the next without a pathway there. Because we still have all these other social factors that lead to the violence that has happened and that consistently happens in our community that's not even just from the police itself. It's just because of the nature of what systemic racism has done in our communities that's still there. But I do think that the conversation is lending to restructuring budgets, right? So that we're not looking at spending so much money on military equipment and things like that. Like we actually started looking, going down to dimes and nickels of what we're spending our money on within the police department, funding that's going into those and actually putting them into social services so that police aren't having to do as much of the social service work that they're complaining about, right? And so I think that when we actually get down to the nuts and bolts, That's where the conversation really needs to go right now. And as we are moving towards that direction, maybe there's a conversation later for a complete abolition. But I think that that 
to take it from here to there that quick without a a strong in-between point will potentially backfire on us. I think one of the more poignant tweets I've seen this week with regard to budgets is like, how do the police have tanks and our doctors are wearing garbage bags right now? These are our priorities. These are not things that are unchangeable and fixed. This is what we've chosen to do. How many people are still sleeping outside at night because there are no more beds in a homeless shelter? Like, let's restructure some of this because where we put our money is where our priorities are. I think no matter what camp, you know, people find themselves in, we can probably all agree that we should have a little think about the budget. City operating budgets have been flying all over Twitter. Uh, For instance, in Columbus, Ohio, the police have a $360 million budget. Now pull out your magnifying glass and see if you can find education in there. Chapter three, can't trust this. Is it true that the police investigate themselves? So yes, historically speaking, the police have the authority to write their own policy internally without having to vet it publicly. So they set their own agenda, they set, you know, their standards, and maybe that's a conversation to a certain degree with the mayor's office. Um, But there is no community input, there is no real community process. In order for you to be accountable, you have to also be transparent. If you're lacking in transparency, in all of these areas, there is no way for the community to hold you accountable because you can shift gears without the community knowing anything because we didn't know what you were supposed to be doing in the first place. Like these policies have to be more out in the open, especially the major, these major policies. I'm not talking about how low you can cut your hair or what socks you need to wear, whatever. I don't care about that. I'm talking about these policies that say, at what point is it okay for you to go into the community? At what point is it okay You know, what is the exact policy on releasing a tank into the community? Those are the the policies that community members have to be made aware of because if we do not allow for transparency on that level, then the community is not empowered to be able to say, hey, I thought you said X, Y, Z and you didn't do it that way. When we have um, police agencies that are willing and cities that are willing to be that transparent, I think we'll start to see a a little bit more trust in the policing system as it stands. What role does qualified immunity play in that? My very abstract understanding of it is that there's basically a very high bar for police to prove um, brutality cases because they're trying to protect the cops from, you know, feeling like they have to think twice in high-risk situations. But this has basically resulted in um, people not thinking twice anytime. Police union contracts provide an extreme amount of protection for example, officer has up to 24 hours before they have to make an official statement, right? When they are involved in a shooting or some other major incident. And they can modify their statement after video and audio recordings come out. What? This is a conversation my husband and I have because he's, he works in corrections, ironically. And so, you know, uh-huh. we have these discussions. Sure. And, um, you know, I get it. You know, after you have a a normal person, if you have to discharge your weapon and you know that that has resulted in either significant life alteration or death, that's a lot to process for a normal person, right? And so I get like being able to have some time to like, okay, let me get my mind together but 24 hours without having to say anything and the ability to come back and retract or change your statement, 
allows for, for example, with Laquan McDonald, where you saw this officer, like literally jumped out the car and opened up on this 17 year old and four or five police officers all came up with the same exact statement. That was a blatant lie. And if these videos didn't exist, no accountability. Exactly. It's like, okay, 24 hours to settle down, but also 24 hours to get your story straight. And even like if you were a person here in Chicago, say I had an interaction with a police officer that was not favorable and I wanted to file a complaint because of the union contract, me as a a regular citizen, I would have to disclose my name, address, phone number, all my identifying information and sign a legal affidavit that then says, if I'm found to be perjuring myself, then I could be held to the highest standard of the law, like very intimidating language. Mm -hmm. But then that is also turned over to the police officer that I'm complaining about. So you could just imagine, I'm not giving this officer my home address because if they was blatant enough to do whatever they did, what's to stop them from retaliating? So it's things like that that's in the police union contracts that most people don't dig into enough. And you see so many officers that are found not guilty or acquitted. It all comes back to, well, they followed policy. Mm -hmm. They follow the, you know what I'm saying? And these policies and things are protected by the union. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes back to the broader issue of cop culture. There's this sort of tribalism that's happening that happens, I think, when people work together, when they have maybe traumatic experiences together. You have like this brotherhood or the sisterhood. You all have similar experiences. It's easy in that position to justify or to see things from that perspective, even if it was a flawed outcome, you put yourself in that shoes and you say, oh man, if I had been in that same position, I can see how that happened. And and it does feed into this us against them as opposed to us all being one community. I wonder about, um, you know, the case in Buffalo, for instance, where 50 some officers quit when there was a cop that clearly assaulted a citizen on camera, you know, Is that a case of all these people putting themselves in his shoes and saying, I could see myself doing that? Like groupthink is probably putting it lightly. And I think that that does not allow for a situation where people can feel like the police are on their side. Because of these kind of things, at the end, without the video, that story would have stood. I think this underscores how revolutionary cell phone cameras and social media really are uh, on this issue. It's easy to see how, in the past, this stuff has just been swept under the rug over and over and over again. And finally, people have tools, you know, an everyday tool to demand accountability. But with America's legacy of racism and police brutality, you know, creating wounds that run very deep for many generations, it leaves me wondering what it will take to heal, if it's even possible to heal. How can the police start to rebuild trust in their communities? Some places, it's not even rebuild. It is initiating and getting the initial part of trust, right? So my mom told me a long time ago that trust is the thing that is the hardest to build and the easiest to lose. Some people are just never going to have it because of the flawed history and how deeply it has run. But I think for those who can be captured with the idea of we can really build this together, it has to be more transparency. It has to be a real pathway for community members to be a partner and not an afterthought in 
how do we really start thinking about public safety? What does that look like to you, community member? What does that look like to us as a policing agency? How do we sit down at the table and actually come up with a plan that we all can take a, take a role in? And that is the basis and the base level for where we start building trust. There's been a lot of talk about improving transparency through technology. A lot of people, I think it was after Ferguson, were calling for the use of body cams. This doesn't seem to have gone uh, the direction that I think a lot of optimists had hoped. Could you speak to the body cams and maybe policing technology more broadly? and what role it can play in increasing transparency. My six-year-old can swipe better than I can at this point. So that's where, <laughs> that's where we are with technology. But I think that we can't rely on technology alone. A, technology in and of itself is just a tool, right? It's, it can't think for you. It can't, it can't reason. It cannot be relied on for the trust building and the relationship building and the transparency that is needed. There still is someone who has to create it and someone who has to use it. And so there's still a place where bias can be built in, bias can be taken, can be um, a, a result of it. When we even look at the makeup of technology companies, most of them don't look like us. Most of those who are building these technologies and shopping them to policing agencies the vast majority aren't women and they definitely aren't black or Latinx. And so because they come from a lot of times a very different life experience, I want to say that it's not even intentional, but you cannot understand or even think far enough to understand the potential implications of not building in some kind of stopgap or putting a certain thing into a technology and knowing what that could potentially do in the community. I think that that is a failure also with even in the tech industry that we have to consider and we have to start looking at. There has to be a an explicit decision by um, police agency leaders and city government to say, this, these are the things that we are going to do. These are the steps that we are taking on how we're going to reduce violence, so forth and so on. Does that make sense to you as a community? If not, how can we be better? And here are the time increments in which we will report on our efforts to the community <laughs> and allow for an open space to say, for a contradiction, for a discussion. And I think not being afraid of the rebuttal from the community and not being afraid of uh, negative responses because I think that a lot of times people want to be applauded. No, we have to leave space for um, criticism mm -hmm. and healthy criticism because that is how we're going to get further. And so it's not just technology, it is all these other pieces that have to be a part of it. Thank you so much, you guys, for joining me for this conversation. And a huge thank to McColl and the NYU Policing Project for their help on this episode. And I'd suggest checking out the resources on their website. That's policingproject.org. I'm also going to be donating all of the advertising revenue to the Policing Project. And if you want to donate yourself, I'll drop a link down below. Take care of yourselves out there, my dears, and I will see you next time.